The history of textiles is full of myths. Maybe you've heard how drowned sailors could be identified by the knitted sweaters they wore, or how quilters would make mistakes in their work on purpose to show humility. Both stories, totally untrue. Then there's the kilt. Made of tartan cloth, kilts represent Scottish clan identity, family ancestry, and a stand against English imperialism. Except none of that is really true either. Or at least it's a lot more complicated than you think. In this episode, we look at the evolution of men's fashion and how it helped turn an obscure ethnic costume into one of history's most famous garments. We talk about how tartan patterns became a marketing scheme in the 1800s, and scandalously, we discover that the Scottish kilt we know today may have been created by an Englishman. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. If you think of a kilt, you probably picture one of two garments. There's the filibeg, or little kilt. This is the knee-length plaid skirt worn with minor differences by Catholic schoolgirls, Highland regiments, and burly guys tossing giant telephone poles in Highland games everywhere. Then there's the filamore, or great kilt, or belted kilt. Six yards of tartan fabric wrapped, belted, and draped around the body. If you've watched the series Outlander, you know what I'm talking about. Whatever the version, kilts seem the epitome of all things Scottish. But back in the 1700s, not all Scots were fans of the kilt. Many thought it was barbaric, worn only by uncouth Highlanders. So how did a garment disparaged in its home country become such a cultural touchstone for anyone with a hint of Scottish descent? To understand what happened with the kilt, we need to look at fashion history. And in an episode devoted to the rough highlands of Scotland, it might seem weird to talk about the splendor of the Elizabethan age or the French court of Louis XIV, but that is exactly where we need to start. My name is Richard Thompson Ford, and I am a professor of law at Stanford. Richard is the author of Dress Codes, How the Laws of Fashion Shaped History. And in his book, he describes how clothing is a wearable language. Fashion can communicate social hierarchy and maintain or subvert political control. I loved reading this book, and there's a link on our show notes page. By dress codes, I mean two different things. One is rules and regulations about what people can wear. The second meaning is rules that determine what our attire means. These rules are not written down, but nevertheless, let you know what a particular garment or type of dress signifies. So from the, at least from the late Middle Ages until the mid-1700s, status is communicated through clothing largely by opulence, sumptuousness, extravagant display. And this is true not only for women, but also for men. Take a look at portraits from these periods, or just watch a few good costume dramas. The Tudor court was fond of jewel-encrusted fabrics and exquisite lace collars and ruffs. 200 years later, at the court of Versailles, women's skirts were too wide to fit through doors, and men's coats were made of lavishly embroidered silk. So, what does any of this have to do with kilts? What people wore, and more importantly, why they wore it, began to shift around the mid-1600s. It's a shift that reflects changing 
political circumstances and changing political ideals. We are now at that point in our program where I have to condense 300 years of political, social, and religious upheaval into maybe 10 sentences. The Protestant Reformation that swept through Europe beginning in the 1500s was a a lot of things that we don't have time to get into. But along with the papacy, relics, and veneration of the Virgin Mary, Protestant sects, many of them, rejected ostentatious display. English Puritans, for example, they were many things, but fashion plates, they were not. So all that fancy dress that signaled who was important and who was not, it started to fray, so to speak, or at least change. Women's clothing stayed opulent and complicated, but for men, you begin to see what Richard calls the great masculine renunciation of fashion. In England, it began with a beheading. In the 1640s, Charles I of England was arrogant, out of touch, and believed in the divine right of kings. He even called them little gods on earth. This attitude did not endear him to the Protestants who controlled Parliament, nor did his Anglican faith nor his Catholic wife. But Parliament controlled the purse strings. Charles had extravagant tastes, along with a knack for really bad military decisions. And when Parliament refused to support his spending, he instituted several new taxes without getting parliamentary approval. Basically, royal shakedowns. It was a bad move. The subsequent civil war between royalist troops and parliamentary forces, led by a famous Puritan named Oliver Cromwell, ended with Charles's execution in 1649. The execution of Charles I ushers in the Commonwealth, which was a Puritan movement. And so religious strictures play a very significant role in the shift away from aristocratic opulence into modesty and sobriety. And that influence of religious Puritanism carries forward. And there's an interesting side note here. Most portraits of Charles show him in full regal gear, ermine cape, silk jackets, lace collars, fancy gloves. At his trial, however, he wore a plain black coat with a simple white collar and cuffs. But if he was trying to convince Parliament that he too valued austerity and modesty, it didn't work. But that downsizing of male fashion was here to stay. And then, even when the monarchy is restored, the new monarch understands that they can't go back to the old ways. And so one of the innovations is to develop a costume that is less obviously invested in the magnificence of royalty and aristocracy. It's streamlined. It's more sober. It's the beginnings of the three-piece suit. Rather than the older values of aristocratic honor and magnificence, we have now entered into a social and political era in which what's valued among elites is rationality, enlightenment, industriousness, and to some extent, equality. And so the new masculine uniform that begins to emerge for the first time is a uniform that's worn not only by heads of state, but also by lowly clerks. Again, take a look at English paintings from, say, mid-16 to late 1700s. Men are often in dark clothing, simpler, narrower coats, and less adornment overall. You still see ribbons and lace and fancy doodads, but it is a lot harder to tell nobles from commoners. Now, this newer, more restrained style is spreading through England at roughly the same time the kilt is spreading through the Scottish Highlands, and more about that in a bit. And each outfit is starting to say something about its wearer whether English or Scottish. 
the changes to fashion in Europe in the 16 and 1700s weren't just religious recalibrations or the first beams of the Enlightenment. They were about national identity. And that was a radically new concept. And it's easy in today's environment to take nationalism for granted. But at the time, a lot of political organization was dynastic or it was more decentralized. Look at a map of Europe in 1700. Italy and Germany, they don't exist. You have giant empires that are split up by other empires. Boundaries change all the time, depending on the latest political alliance. Nationalism was one attempt to create stability, loyalty to a country rather than a king, because this was also a time when kings get deposed or executed with alarming frequency. Nationalism is identity rooted in the state itself. And that was a project. It wasn't something that came about naturally at all. It was something that elites had to work on. So flags, national museums, newspapers, um, maps, all of these are, in one sense, tools of propaganda to convince people to think of themselves as citizens of a nation state. And attire is part of that project. So there were actually proposals throughout Europe for something like a national civilian uniform where all citizens, or at least all male citizens in good standing, would wear a national uniform to signify their membership in the national community. And this is a concept we totally get today, even if there's no such thing as a national smock. Say, French fashion, and you evoke the French themselves, elegant, sophisticated. Go to a 4th of July barbecue, and it seems that everyone is wearing some version of the American flag. And by the 1700s, the English had started to figure out this concept and really embrace it. These new restrained suits were sensible, modest, proper, qualities we still think of as English today. And as Ireland and Wales fell under English rule and Great Britain emerged, they began adopting the English style too. Scotland, though? Scotland was split geographically, politically, and sartorially. Coming up after the break, tricky history and kilt controversies. We're back, and our guest Richard has just laid out how clothing in the 1700s is becoming as much about national identity as it is about social status, and in some cases, even more so. Now, when it comes to Scotland and the kilt, no one thought, hey, we really need to come up with a national outfit, so let's make it a plaid skirt for guys. In fact, at that point in time, the kilt wasn't so much a Scottish thing as a Highlander thing, worn in the Wild North. And not everyone in the Highlands wore them. We have the first written description of the kilt in 1538, but there are plenty of later accounts that also describe long tunics and trues, kind of a cross between pants and leggings. The belted kilt is a utilitarian garment. Six yards of fabric are folded into pleats, then wrapped to make a roomy skirt, twisted and tucked to make pockets, and then draped over the shoulder to make a cloak and hood. We have a video of how to put one on on our show notes page, and it is well worth watching. The wool fabric would have been water-resistant and warm in the rainy climate, and tough enough to use as a blanket when sleeping rough. And it does seem to have been widely adopted throughout the Highlands by the mid to late 1600s. But again, not by everyone. So at least one commentator suggests that the Highland elite didn't wear these aspects of, you know, ancient or traditional Scottish dress. 
they dressed much like people in England. And meanwhile, a lot of Scottish lowlanders based in southern cities like Edinburgh and Glasgow, they looked down upon the Highland Scots. The area was wild and lawless, and the people who lived there were often described as savage. To most lowlanders, kilts were something barbarians wore, or yokels. But in the early 1700s, a new kind of kilt shows up. And this is the little kilt we're all familiar with, the skirt part only. And there is some evidence it was created by an Englishman. Yes. And now I realize this must be very controversial, but um, one commentator argued, and I found some evidence to support this, that the little kilt was a variation on the great kilt that was devised by uh, a Quaker industrialist in order to provide his Scottish workers with clothing that was suitable to factory work. And the great kilt was too big and it would get in the way of the machinery. This was the idea. So he devised this shorter kilt that would be good for working in the factory and gave it to his workers. And that was the origin of the little kilt. This Quaker was Thomas Rawlinson, an Englishman who opened an ironworks in 1715. And what strikes me about this story isn't just its controversy. There's a lot of scholarly argument about it. But the idea that Highland Scots would have been unwilling to wear anything other than a kilt, even if it had to be cut down and modified for factory work, it is already that much a part of their identity. But still, regardless of how many people wore the kilt and what kind and where, it was mainly regional garb. In fact, if left alone, it probably would have faded away and been replaced with more modern clothing if it were not for a series of revolts called the Jacobite Rebellions. Okay, it's time for more oversimplified history. After Elizabeth I died without heirs in 1603, the English crown fell to James Stuart, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and he was the father of the executed Charles I. The next several decades get complicated, and you have civil wars and multiple James and Charleses who were kings of England, Scotland, or both. Fast forward to the early 1700s, George I, who's basically a German import, was now king of Great Britain, but not Scotland, depending on whom you talk to. Because one of James Stuart's descendants, yet another James, now claimed the throne for himself. Scotland already had an uneasy relationship with England. Protestant Scots, mainly Lowlanders, wanted to become part of Great Britain, while Catholic Scots, mainly in the Northern Highlands, wanted to remain independent with their own parliament and a Stuart king. They were called Jacobites after their support of James Stuart and his descendants. And key to our story is that the Scots who were pro-English rule tended to dress like Englishmen, while the Catholic Scots, Highlanders or not, now took up the kilt to show their support for a Stuart monarchy. In 1745, James's son, Bonnie Prince Charlie, raised a Scottish army. And after some early victories, he was totally crushed by British forces at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. This effectively ended the Jacobite Rebellion, but it also cemented it as one of the most romanticized episodes of Scottish history. An exiled king and his Highland forces against the might of the British Empire. By the mid-1700s, England, or Great Britain at this point, was well on its way to becoming a global empire. It had colonies in the Americas and Africa, and British identity went well beyond clothing at this point. 
And much of that identity was based on destroying other cultures and substituting their own. And they took this mindset into Scotland with something called the Act of Proscription, or Dress Act. The Highland Dress Act was part of a larger piece of legislation that was designed to once and for all subdue the independent Scottish clans and bring them under the political control of Great Britain. And so one of those elements was to deprive them of symbols that signified Scottish national identity, the traditional Highland dress. And this is because kilts were essentially Jacobite uniforms by this point. The act banned both kinds of kilts, along with plaid or tartan coats. Anyone wearing them could be jailed for six months for the first offense. Second offense would get you transported to one of the other English colonies for seven years. And there are records of men serving time for wearing one. One important exception, though, were Scottish military regiments belonging to the English crown. And remember, this was not a simple conflict, and not every Scot had sided with the Jacobites. There were maybe 10,000 Scottish troops in the British military at this time. So why forbid the kilt in some cases and require it in others? Part of it is what Richard describes as sartorial colonialism. So you had Scottish clans wearing the kilt and other types of distinctive Scottish garb who were enemies of British national consolidation, and all of those people would be banned from wearing it in order to demoralize them. But at the same time, Great Britain was using various of the Scottish clans as part of their uh, military force. And the kilt was part of the military uniform of regiments of the British military, which was deployed not only in Scotland, but all over the world. And I was kind of confused by this. Was the British army saying you can only be Scottish if you do it for England? Uh, No, I think there was more to it than that. I think that was certainly part of it. I think uh, a lot of it was a mechanism to create identity, esprit de corps, and morale among the regiments as well. So, you know, looking at some of the poetry and rhetoric around the Scottish regiments, it's quite clear that they were both proud of their Scottish heritage, also proud of their role in serving Britain. But like so many things in this episode, there's a twist. He quotes me a regimental marching song. Let others boast of filibeg of kilt and belted plaid, whilst we the ancient trues will wear, in which our fathers bled. It, it was striking to me for a number of reasons. I mean, one was that it really demonstrated the way the attire was a source of pride and morale for these regiments. And it also demonstrated the the, the controversies and complexities of claims about ancient origin. So here's a group who's saying, no, the kilt isn't what Scottish people wore in ancient times. They were the trues. And the kilt is new. All these people who are singing about their, you know, so proud of their kilts are really newbies compared to us who understand the ancient origins. But I feel that there's another interpretation of this as well. Did the song show loyalty to England by dissing the kilt outright, but still hang on to Scottish identity? By the late 1700s, in the eyes of most people, the kilt was now a symbol, maybe the symbol of Scotland. And it's the English who did that. One contemporaneous commentator commented on the fact that 
the Tartan Act had dramatically backfired. And he suggested, you know, if we had never passed the Tartan Act, all of these aspects of distinctive Scottish dress probably would have gone away and faded into history. But because it was outlawed, it created a sort of halo around these customs and practices. Uh, it's such that everyone rallied around them as a source of national pride, and it preserved them in the hearts and minds of people in a way that they otherwise probably would not have, and therefore made it inevitable that they would persist and even spread to people who had never worn that type of clothing in the past. Possibly realizing this colossal PR blunder, the British government repealed the Dress Act in 1782. Much of its purpose had been accomplished. The Highland clans had been largely brought under British control, but also because it was backfiring. Now, the clans may have been subdued, but the kilt was suddenly red hot. Remember how we said when many clan leaders themselves didn't wear the kilt, often preferring English clothes? That totally changed. In fact, if you look at portraits from the late 1700s, it now seems that every Scottish elite put on a tartan to pose, whether he was a Highlander or not. And not just Scots. The kilt became this romantic symbol of independence. Even Highlanders were now romanticized, though they had been looked down upon as wild outlaws or from the Scottish version of Deliverance. Now it seemed that everyone wanted to have some Highlander blood along with a kilt. And in fact, one historian describes the way um, a Highlander society that was based in London conducted research in order to de demonstrate the ancient pedigree of various types of tartans and various types of kilts, and then had them manufactured in order to exhibit their aristocratic pedigree. So about the tartan patterns they were manufacturing, the idea how every clan and family had its own tartan, they totally made that up. So it appears that while the tartan pattern itself was of ancient origin and was worn in Scotland, it was not primarily designed to identify families or clans. You certainly had regional differences in the plaid patterns, but this was due more to local tradition, not clan affiliation. In fact, the earliest official tartan pattern was military in origin. In 1725, George I had called for six watch companies to patrol the Highlands, quote, disarming Highlanders, bringing criminals to justice, and hindering rebels. They were ordered to wear the same tartan cloth so they could identify one another. The dark blue and green plaid became known as Black Watch, or government tartan. So, in yet another twist, the first official tartan was about subduing the Highlanders, not celebrating them. Early catalogs of tartan were just sales tools for cloth manufacturers, basically catalogs of fabric samples. The patterns might have been given names, but only to differentiate them, not to link them to any family. It wasn't until the New Highland societies began manufacturing pedigrees that the tartan patterns acquired any special significance. Some commentators argue that this ancient family or origin for the tartan was simply manufactured and then became the basis of an invented tradition. One commentator even goes so far as to say that it was very much a marketing strategy on the part of textile manufacturers who were happy to sell their surplus tartans to people as 
tied to a particular clan, and in one case, even traced the development of a particular tartan that once had been sold under you know, just a generic number, like number 122, to someone to clothe their West Indian slaves, and then was later re-described as belonging to a particular Scottish uh, family. The kilt would continue this rehab from outlaw clothing to aristocratic pedigree for another hundred years. In 1822, George IV visited Edinburgh. It was the first royal visit to Scotland in 175 years, and he wore full Highland dress to mark the occasion. But the true apotheosis came in 1853, when Prince Albert himself designed a new tartan, reserved for the royal family to this day. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media. And our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer. It, it just is an aside. Um, Braveheart, the movie, was so irritating. Yes. Because <laughs> no one wore kilts then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.